Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Leading Edge Love Radio. This is your host, Sumati Sparks, the Open Relationship Coach at sumatisparks.com. And today I'm really excited to have as my guest a new dear friend named Kathy Labriola. Kathy is a nurse, a counselor, and a hypnotherapist. She's been in private practice in Berkeley, California for over 25 years. Her mission is providing affordable mental health services to alternative communities, including the poly, kink, LGBTQ communities, and political activists. Kathy is the author of two books, Love in Abundance and The Jealousy Workbook. And her forthcoming book is The Poly Breakup Book, Causes, Survival, and Prevention. She's been a card-carrying bisexual and polyamorous for 45 years. And she's a political activist, rides a bike, and lives in a housing co-op and raises chickens and vegetables. Welcome to the show, Kathy. Thank you, Sumati. I love your show, and I'm thrilled to be here. So glad you're here. I've really enjoyed getting to know you over this past year or so, and have really enjoyed all of our collaborations, and I just feel like you're a wealth of knowledge, and many people have said your books have been a major player in their learning about uh, non-monogamy and um, you know, learning to overcome jealousy, and just the other day someone said that your love and abundance was their favorite poly book, so you've been getting rave reviews on your books, mm-hmm. and I wanted to just find out, you know, how this all got started for you, if you can think back to 25 years ago, when we didn't even have words for what we're doing. <laughs> um, how did this all get uh, happen for you to become a, a counselor in the area of alternative relationships? Well, I I had a previous career for many years as an intensive care unit nurse, uh, and I worked with uh, taking care of people with AIDS, HIV and AIDS, as well as other people with life-threatening illnesses. And when I decided to go into private practice doing counseling, I was more expecting to be utilizing my nursing background to see clients who had medical conditions and needed some counseling around that because most counselors and therapists don't really have that background and really don't know how to help people with medical issues. However, because I myself was have always been in a polyamorous open relationship and because I had previously uh, been a volunteer facilitating support groups for people in open relationships, a lot of people started coming to see me for counseling for those issues. So it was kind of a surprise to me. I was expecting mainly to do counseling, medically related counseling for people with chronic health issues. But it's turned out that uh, because people couldn't find other counselors or therapists that had expertise in open relationships, they were coming to me for that. So I naturally started to do a lot more of that. It wasn't my intention and how, in the first place. Got it. That makes sense. And then how did you, were you are, have all of your relationships your whole life been non-monogamous? Or did somebody, did you meet somebody who kind of guided you into that? Or No, that's been a lifelong thing for me. And it, for me, it has to do with, or at least initially had to do with, really understanding at a very young age that I was bisexual and being that I am bisexual and have a romantic and passionate attraction to people of all genders, 
it seemed very unlikely to me that I would be happy being strictly monogamous with one person of one gender. And that Got was it. my original reason for feeling like I couldn't really promise a lifetime of monogamy to one person of one gender when I knew I had an orientation towards being open to falling in love with someone of any gender. Uh-huh. And what was that like 25 years ago for you to tell people that you were non-monogamous? Did did you have a hard time finding partners that were okay with that or was it different in Berkeley during that era? Uh no, that was just my orientation from the start and I was and that's been going on for 45 years and it's become more uh more common over the decades and people at least have a little more of a vocabulary now to understand it and to know what it is. I think at the mm-hmm. very beginning when I was initially engaged in this kind of relationship it you know a lot of people just didn't have a clue what on earth I was talking about. Got it. Yeah. Um, so how do you work with all these different terms now? Because, you know, polyamory is a relatively new term as far as our culture goes, but it already starts to feel a little outmoded, and people are talking about ethical non-monogamy, consensual non-monogamy, open relationships. So how do you define mm-hmm. all these different terms? Personally, I just encourage people to use use these terms interchangeably because there's no accepted definition for any one of them. And one person may mean something when they say open relationship. Someone else may mean exactly that same thing when they say polyamory. So my attitude is, or my advice to people is, it doesn't matter what you call your relationship style or your love style, as long as you make it explicitly clear to your partners and potential partners what you mean by that term. Mm-hmm. so that they know what they're getting into. They can make an informed choice about whether this is a model that works for them or not. Right. Yeah, and I, I notice that people who practice alternative relationship styles tend to be kind of more of a rebellious type people, and labels don't really fit for most of us anyway. So we all just have to find our truth of, of how to describe what we're doing and whatever works for us. It's probably going to be always changing over time. Very true. Very true. Mm-hmm. Yes. And even a term like bisexual, which I used to describe myself now is considered very much outmoded. A lot more people are calling themselves pansexual or omnisexual or ambisexual or have some other term that is, that feels more inclusive. Oh right, so that's terms true. Really don't, <laughs> these terms really don't matter at all, as long as you know what you mean by them, and as long as you can articulate to other people what it means to you. Exactly right. Yeah, but thank you for that consciousness raising, because bisexual, there's an assumption of two genders, and it it doesn't include mm-hmm. people who fit somewhere in the middle or flow between genders. So. Thank you. That was a good consciousness raising just by that little comment you made. (laughs) Um, Well, the term was invented at the time. (laughs) Go ahead. That term, the term bisexual was invented at a time when the world only recognized two genders, male and female. So uh, it kind of has to be updated now that we have a, a, a different definition of gender. 
Of course. Okay, so why don't you talk a little bit about the different models of alternative relationships, uh, open relationships, many different models. Um, I know you've been working with people for a long time, and you've probably seen everything. So what are some of the most common models, and how how do they differ from one another? Well, there are probably a 100 different models, but they all fall into three kind of larger categories. And it's very important to understand what model you're in and what model works for you because it's one of the four most common reasons that open relationships break up, that one person wants one model and the other person wants a different model. And it's just they, they are somewhat mutually exclusive. The most common model that is practiced by the overwhelming majority of people in open relationships is what I describe as the primary secondary model. When I say it's it's overwhelmingly practiced, I don't mean it's better or superior in any way. It just seems to be the one that most people are using, and I think it's the most popular because it's the most similar to a traditional marriage or monogamous relationship. The mm-hmm. primary relationship is the marriage or the person you're living with and that you are making into a life partner, and then the secondary relationships exist outside of that primary relationship, and the primary relationship is prioritized over any other relationship. So it's the most similar to kind of a traditional monogamous marriage. It's, it's As one of my clients said, well, it's just like marriage with cheating and having affairs, except you're honest about it and it, everyone's consenting to it. <laughs> and so I think most people are very familiar with that model because that's the model we see all around us, people who are, say they're monogamous but they're cheating and having affairs. So we're just doing that but the honest and open way and getting everybody's buy-in into it. So the, the second model is what I call the multiple primary partners model, and that's a model where any relationship that you enter into even though you already have a primary relationship or marriage, that any new relationship you enter into could potentially become a primary relationship and could become as important to you as the initial primary relationship. And mm-hmm. that model, there's quite a few sub-variations within that model, uh, but the key thing is that you you are open to having more than one primary partner. And most people find this model a little more challenging. It, when, it's, when it works, it's fantastic, <laughs> but most people find it a little more challenging because uh, it's difficult for most of us to share our beloved with another partner like as a fully primary relationship. It's a little easier for most of us if we feel like we're the most important person. Mm-hmm. And then the, there's a third model, which is, which I describe as the multiple non-primary relationships, and this is just similar to being single and dating, that you can uh, date and be involved with two, three, or four, or more people, but that are not you do not have the in, interest or intention of developing a primary relationship. You don't want to get married or live with anyone. And this model works great for people that are artists or musicians or they have 
they're single parents with small kids or they're totally married to their career or any for any number of reasons they just do not have the interest in or the bandwidth to be involved in a primary relationship right now and so they're very honest with people saying they just want to have more casual or secondary relationships mm-hmm. okay well that was really clear so I hear you saying that those are the most common, um, but I want to ask you a few questions and maybe some of these things fit into like subcategories or maybe there are separate categories. So what about um, poly family, like people who they don't even want to call themselves, say that they're in an open relationship. There's multiple people in a relationship, but it's not open. Yes, uh, that's what I. That's a, a subcategory within the multiple primary relationships mm-hmm. model, multiple mm-hmm. primary partners model, and it's sometimes mm-hmm. called polyfidelity because it right. involves a uh, what would sometimes be called a group marriage. It's a mm-hmm. marriage of three, four, five, however many people are all married to each other. Uh, but they are polyfidelitous because they practice sexual fidelity within the family. They are not right. allowed or they have made a decision or commitment not to have sex with anyone outside of that group, and the only mm-hmm. way they would have sex with someone outside the group is if the whole group decided to invite a new person to join the family. Mm-hmm. And that is, right. for most people, the hardest model to succeed at because it is so challenging uh, for most people to even find one person they can live with happily ever (laughs) after, (laughs) that they're really compatible enough with on all those levels, you know, domestic living and food and cleanliness and children and finances. It's hard enough to find one person you really can live with long term, but to find, you know, four people or even, you know, three that you really can live with in for the long term. That's challenging, but some people really make it work and it can be a really it has a lot of strength as a model if you have the right people. It really requires a very high degree of affinity between people on lots of different issues and a lot of flexibility and willingness to compromise. Yeah, I can imagine a lot of communication too. Mm-hmm. But if you can make it work, the rewards are great. Fabulous. Okay, and then we've heard this term relationship anarchy, and that, that seems similar to not the non-primary model, but it, I think it also includes non-sexual relationships or like treating all relationships equally, whether they're sexual or not. Um, how do you understand the term relationship anarchy? I have always put the I've always folded the relationship anarchy model into the multiple primary partners model because mm-hmm. right. any in in relationship anarchy any relationship has the potential to become primary and to become even more important than any other relationship that you might already be calling primary. So mm-hmm. a relationship anarchy just means that the individual is the center of the universe. The individual decides who they want to sexually and romantically engage with, who they want to be their domestic partners, who may or may not be sexual partners, who they want to live with in some kind of you know living arrangement, uh, who they consider family, and 
it can change quite rapidly. You might be living with one person and be in a primary relationship with them and someone else. You may decide that person is really the person you want to live with and be primary with, or you may decide you want to be primary with both. It's a very, it's a very fluid model, and for that to work, people have to be extremely independent and extremely secure in themselves. My experience mm-hmm. is very few people could actually make the relationship anarchy model work because most of us need a little more predictability and mm. the ability to make long-term plans of like who we're going to be living with for the foreseeable future or who mm-hmm. and who we're going to be sharing finances and with and who we're going to be planning our lives around or with and so for most of us it's pretty hard to be quite that flexible mm-hmm. and just not know if the partner's going to be you know here today gone tomorrow <laughs> you know they're not really right. promising you anything <laughs> oh and uh-huh. most of us want a little bit more commitment from our uh-huh. partner than that <laughs> mm-hmm. well i love how you come from such a compassionate place and a place of realism because you've worked with so many people for so many years like you really understand our tender hearts and our our core wounds and the patterns that we bring to relationships that makes it hard to just create a whole new model so most of us fall into that kind of hierarchical you know this is my primary and then from this safe secure nest we're going to go out Mm. and try to create other experiences but I want to ask mm-hmm. about there's a term that floats around a lot called couples privilege. And there's almost kind mm-hmm. of a judgment in there that, um, mm-hmm. that the secondary person um, doesn't have as much of a voice because the couple has a privilege. So how do you understand that term? and How does that fit in with uh, the mm-hmm. um, primary model? You're talking about the primary secondary model where the where the primary couple has made certain agreements and they're asking uh-huh. secondary partners to go along with those agreements. Is that what you're, yeah, what so you're the talking? Secondary yeah, secondary person. Yeah. Yes, unless yeah, they also have a primary, they sometimes don't have as um, strong of a voice in uh, mm. strong of a say in what's going to happen in their lives because the couple has a privilege over them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, that is very true, that couples who have made a commitment to each other do have privileges. And I'm, to me, you know, the word privilege has, you know, taken on such a negative connotation. And in certainly in, in some places, in some situations, it certainly is appropriate that it should be negative. In this situation, I don't see it as a negative. I see it mm-hmm. as you have established a committed relationship with someone and you have a right to expect that they're going to keep whatever commitments they've made to you. However, mm-hmm. if you if your partner has another relationship and that person is asking for some change in the agreement, you shouldn't just rule it out off the bat and say, oh, well, we can't change it because we've agreed on this. I don't mm-hmm. think you should just throw the agreement out the window, but I think if mm-hmm. a if a partner who's in a secondary relationship is unhappy and there's something they want 
to ask for a change, that they certainly mm-hmm. should have a right to ask for that. doesn't mean they're necessarily going to get 100% of what they mm-hmm. want. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes there's no uh, there's no compromise that will work if if the secondary partner wants the partner to leave the other person or wants them mm-hmm. to demote the other person to secondary and make them primary. Mm-hmm. That's not really a reasonable expectation. Mm-hmm. There's not really yeah. any way to meet the needs of everyone in that situation. So. Mm-hmm. It's this primary secondary model does work best when, if you're in a primary relationship, you pick secondary partners who are also in a primary relationship with someone else, because their right. needs for that kind of commitment are being met, and they are not mm-hmm. really looking for you to defect from your marriage and run away with them, <laughs> or to right. change your marriage dramatically in order to make a lot more room for them. And again, right, I right, I, right. I totally am in support of a secondary partner asking for what they want and trying to mm-hmm. see if it's negotiable. There are many married couples and cohabiting couples who were in a primary secondary model, and at some point they decided to shift to an all primary partners model because one of them had a secondary relationship. And that relationship was just naturally evolving into a primary relationship. That other mm-hmm. person really wanted that, and they were the couple was able to be flexible enough to make room for that. So that mm-hmm. I often see that right. evolution. It's it's not painless, you know, and it's it can be very right. challenging. But if everyone cares about each other and everybody wants each other to be happy, oftentimes a couple can decide to change their model in order to be more inclusive of another person who has needs that don't fit into the primary secondary model. Got it. Thank you. So yeah, this um to the outside world can all sound so complicated. So why on earth would anyone want to be in an open relationship? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question and it's a question I, I I'm asked that question every day by people who are like, oh no, why would anyone do that? That sounds just insane, you know. <laughs> well, and the the answer I like to give people is that people who are involved in any kind of open relationship are usually looking for the best of both worlds. They were always a accused of wanting to have our cake and eat it too and it's true we do <laughs> we do want that we're trying to have the best things about marriage and the best things about being single and mm-hmm. we're trying somehow to come up with a model that will allow us to have the se- security the stability the companionship and the long-term intimate connection with a partner that you get in marriage or a cohabiting relationship. We're trying to combine that with the best of being single, which means going out and having fun sexual and romantic adventures and meeting new people, getting involved with them and and kind of seeing where it goes. (laughs) And for people that are in a monogamous relationship, in order to have any of that freedom or any of that sexual and romantic 
newness and excitement, they have to break up with their partner. Mm-hmm. And right. so our goal as polyamorists is don't break up, just add on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you wrote a book about jealousy. Um, so how, and, and just a, a brief, you don't, you know, it's a big book. <laughs> I've I've read some of it. I haven't worked through it all the way yet. But um, just in a nutshell, um, how do people deal with the feeling of jealousy when their partner goes out and gets into a new relationship or a new flirtation and they're really excited about a new person but they want they still want that security and long term love and connection with their primary. Um mm-hmm. but the primary partner that's not in the new relationship, how do they still feel desired and wanted when their partner is off in a new exciting experience? Well, because that partner is going to come home to you. They're not mm-hmm. leaving you for someone else. They are mm-hmm. just having an another experience and they're going to keep returning to you and to the relationship that you've created together and for most people it takes having that experience repeatedly the partner goes on a date and the partner comes back and nothing has changed really they still love me just as much they still want me just as much we're still just you know as happy together Nothing really has changed. When the, if someone sees that and has that experience often enough, usually it will become a lot easier because they'll say, "Well, mm-hmm. my partner can do this without it affecting our relationship very much." And in my experience, sometimes it actually enhances their relationship because they come back to their primary with with excitement and energy, and it can actually juice up the sex life of the long-term couple. It often has that effect. It often has what what I call the sexual spillover effect in that mm-hmm. both partners are there, both the partner who is going out on a date or going out with someone new and the partner who maybe is at home but is not going out with someone else, you value each other more. Mm-hmm. And I've seen so many people where this it's like a married couple or a cohabiting couple that were kind of so-so about each other. You know, they weren't too excited about each other, not just sexually, but, you know, they just weren't even that sure why they were together anymore. But one person goes out and starts another relationship, and suddenly you remember why you're in love with this person. You remember what brought you together with that person. Suddenly you're more passionate about them, not just sexually, but emotionally. You're, they become more precious to you. And it's partly mm-hmm. because you have this terrible fear of somehow losing them to this other person. Uh-huh. But the fact uh-huh. that someone else is so attracted to your partner makes you remember, wow, they're really a catch. They're really hot. Everyone exactly. else wants them too. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I, and I think that, that is true for me. Uh-huh. When somebody is interested in my partner, I'm like, yeah, he's kind of hot, isn't he? <laughs> I want him even more. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like a primal response. It's not even like that much on an intellectual level it's kind of more of a primal you know i gotta keep my man kind of thing <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure that's a part of it but i also think it's just seeing and recognizing that other people find your partner extremely attractive as a person and attractive sexually 
and are drawn to that person, you, it reminds you why you were drawn to them, too. Especially reminds you of, wow, when I first met them and first fell in love with them, wow, these are the things I totally loved about them. And mm-hmm. it, the That's other fun. part of that spillover effect is that, say, your partner is out going on dates with people, they're remembering to make what we sometimes call a courting effort. They're mm-hmm. making an effort to woo this other person. So they're dressing nicely, they've showered, they maybe they've, you know, got they've fixed their hair or whatever and they're in mm-hmm. on their best behavior and often they mm-hmm. remember, wow, I have kind of stopped doing that for my partner at home and mm-hmm. I'm going to start doing that again. I've, I, right. I can't tell you how many women I've talked to that say, you know, suddenly my husband started buying me gifts and bringing flowers home, and suddenly <laughs> he started buying some nice clothes and, you know, showering more often. You know, he just somehow remembered that, wow, I have kind of stopped making that effort, and I really need to uh-huh. make that effort for my partner at home because I am making that courting effort for the new partner because, you know, you're trying to woo them. <laughs> It can exactly. kind of get you yeah. in some good habits in terms of ro- being romantic. Yeah, because we do get kind of lazy in long-term relationships. <laughs> yeah, we take our partner for granted. They take us for granted. And if, some, if your partner's dating someone else, believe me, you're not going to take them for granted. Right, exactly. So if you're just joining us, you're listening to Leading Edge Love Radio. This is your host, Sumati Sparks, the Open Relationship Coach, at sumatisparks.com, and we're speaking with alternative relationship expert Kathy Labriola, who's a counselor and a hypnotherapist for over 25 years, and she's just a wealth of knowledge. So, Kathy, um, what are some of the skills that can increase people's odds of a polyamorous relationship being healthy and happy, you know, for the long haul? That is a great question, too, and it's very important to really, really ramp up your communication skills. Open relationships of any kind require way more communication and way better communication, way more explicit communication about your wants, your needs, what you're willing to do, what you're not willing to do, what your boundaries are, what your hard limits are. How how and where you're willing to kind of stretch yourself and and try to cope with something that's difficult and where you just know that no this is a boundary and I just can't cross it. So, in monogamous relationships, people are somewhat able to coast on assumptions. It's not a great idea <laughs> because it does get you in mm-hmm. trouble eventually. But people in monogamous relationships can coast a lot more for a lot longer just assuming that they and their partner have shared assumptions about what what the relationship is supposed to be about, what the rules are, what they're allowed to do, what they're not allowed to do, and what the expectation is uh, that their partner has of them. Whereas in any kind of open relationship, you can't really assume anything. You have to negotiate everything. Mm-hmm. And my friend Jay Wiseman, who wrote the book SM101, has written many books on polyamory and other things, 
he calls himself a negotiations fetishist. And he says that for polyamorous mm. people, we have to really almost fetishize negotiating. We It's not like mm-hmm. you're sitting down uh, and negotiating a contract or anything. It's not like you're being hard-nosed and like being, it's all business. It's nothing like that. It's that if you start a relationship with someone and it's an open relationship, you have no way of knowing what expectations they have or what their needs are and they have no way of knowing what you want either unless you tell them mm-hmm. so, so that requires that a lot of discussion right so do you think that monogamous people can learn from polyamorous people um, to have better relationships based on these types of communication skills and because it seems like polyamorous people just build a muscle for it, and it's not so hard after a while. And monogamous people kind of let that muscle go flaccid, and over time they stop communicating about things as much. So do you think that there's lessons to learn um, from what poly people have figured out? I certainly think that's true. I don't mean to knock the monogamous people. I certainly have seen some monogamous couples that really do communicate a lot, and they're very honest with each other. It's just that they kind of can get away with not being so honest and not telling each other what they really think and feel. Uh, so I tell you again, I don't want to, don't mean to criticize them. Some of them do very well with it. But I do think a lot of monogamous people could really learn a lot from just the way polyamorous people are kind of, we have no choice but to really sit down and explain what our needs are. And we really are constantly challenged to do things that are very difficult and sometimes very painful, and then to have to communicate that to our partner that, wow, that was just too painful and really didn't work for me. We need to renegotiate Mm -hmm. this boundary. So I think Mm -hmm. that monogamous people could learn a lot from that because I think they... I often see monogamous couples who are about to divorce and they discover that, boy, they have not been telling each other the truth about a lot of things over the Mm -hmm. years. They just, you know, sweep it under the rug and then it Mm -hmm. eventually will lead to divorce. Mm -hmm. Right. Or just don't want to tell each other what. What? Right. Or or at the very minimum, it, it leads to them like a, a tremendous loss of intimacy or, you know, no no sexual connection anymore because they're not really speaking their truth. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, and they're just yeah. not communicating about a lot of the anger and resentment they may have, a lot of the fears they may mm-hmm. have, a lot of things that have hurt them. Or they just choose not to talk about it because that's too threatening in the relationship. Mm-hmm. So I think they could do better if they would learn some better communication skills and be willing to take those risks of really telling the truth about what their needs are and what they're feeling. Right, exactly. And asking for what you want is often very hard. Like first even knowing what you want and then being able to put it into words. Do you think it helps um, couples, whether they're mono or poly, to have some kind of structure in their life where, They have like maybe a weekly check-in or a a nightly check-in, some kind of structure that supports them in having these difficult conversations. 
Well, I certainly think it helps to have that structure, to have some kind of a check-in on a regular basis. I usually suggest not doing it too often because, you know, too much processing is not a good thing either. You know, you begin to dread mm-hmm. even having those conversations. But, but a specific mm-hmm. thing like once every two weeks for a two hours or once a week for one hour or something like that where you can just check in and see how things are going and suggest, mm-hmm. you know, things that maybe you want to change or goals you have that you need help with. Right. Exactly. Well, and, uh, I wanted to uh, underscore something you said a few minutes ago that uh, when I was talking about the good communication skills and, and how important that is in an open relationship, it is even more important, as you said, to know what you want because you mm-hmm. can't communicate it if you don't. And mm-hmm. I see so many polyamorous people who really that's where things totally fall apart they either are afraid of even acknowledging to themselves what their needs are and what they want and what they what kind of boundaries they need and so their partner couldn't possibly have a clue <laughs> what they need so mm-hmm. i really suggest that people try your best to just individually as just an individual go off on your own and think about what you need without without thinking, oh, but my partner would never go for that, or oh, my partner wouldn't want that, or oh, my partner will be angry if I say that, or if I ask for that. Try to just get to the point of knowing exactly what it is you want, and then you can always compromise later if the partner mm-hmm. doesn't want that, or if they are upset by your asking for that. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Or at least be willing to collaborate together to discover things like I'm thinking particularly sexually. A lot of times um, women don't know what they want, so the man's just fumbling around because he's watched a lot of porn or whatever, and the woman's, like, Mm -hmm. never really said what she wanted, but she doesn't know what she wants. And so, like, uh, teaming up together with curiosity and, like, getting your egos out of the way and and just exploring different things till till you find what works, I think, is a a great Mm -hmm. skill, but... It's a challenge for a lot of people because of our histories and our stories around how, you know, I'm a good lover and you shouldn't have to tell me what to do. Mm -hmm. (laughs) What do you do do with those kinds of situations where you have people with fragile egos that don't want to be told what to do in bed? (laughs) Yeah, that is, I mean, that is a difficult thing, whether you're monogamous or in an open relationship. And sometimes mm-hmm. it can be even more challenging in a polyamorous relationship because if you start suggesting certain ways that your partner can really give you sexual pleasure, they often will start comparing themselves to the other your other lover mm-hmm. and thinking, oh, right. your other lover is a better lover than me and now you're trying to get me to do the things they do or something. Mm-hmm. Whether that may be yes. true or not, it may have no truth to it whatsoever, but there is that mm-hmm. additional mm-hmm. kind of thing of, you know, they start comparing themselves to whoever else mm-hmm. you may be involved with. So, so it has that extra kind of overtone that you have to be willing to address. And I always really urge people, the comparison thing is often a big component of jealousy, that there's mm-hmm. always this fear that we're not good enough 
you know, even monogamous people have that fear. They're not good enough. But if you add an extra partner into the mix, then you are easily going to feel, oh, that person is smarter, better looking than me, better in bed than me, or, you know, more charming and talented, or, you know, there's some reason that they must be superior to me, or otherwise why would my partner want them? And, you know, all of that can just go down the rabbit hole, and I just always say just as soon as you start on that whole comparison thing, just stop, just stop, because no good will come of it. Because there's mm-hmm. always going to be some way that you can find that this other person might have some quality that you don't have. I mean, so what? Mm-hmm. So, you know, that <laughs> your partner still loves you and wants you and, you know, you have some great qualities that the other person doesn't have. But, you know, I think that the danger is you're always going to be able to come up with some way of convincing yourself that somehow the other person is superior and that makes you feel bad about yourself and ruins your self-esteem. Right. So we just have to come back to um, realizing who we are and developing that that self-love and, um, you know, strong sense of self um, and knowing that you're a unique gift. Mm-hmm. Well, and sir, I, I certainly think it can be helpful if, you're, if your partner is involved with someone else, it can be helpful for them to try to gently explain to you what is it that you find attractive about this other person and what is it that you're receiving in that relationship, but explaining that gently without making it sound like, well, they're better than you, (laughs) but more that, you know, this is just a different experience and we can have a different experience without it making you bad or wrong or inadequate. I think that just understanding what the motive is or what is actually what your partner is actually receiving in this other relationship can be reassuring and helping you understand why they're doing this. Yeah, I was just going to say that good old-fashioned reassurance is is often needed and we forget that. It's such a simple thing, but just to give your partner reassurance a lot of times mm-hmm. moves over a lot of that stuff. <laughs> Mhm, mhm. Yeah, and there just seems to be this very core belief that's so uh, embedded in our society that if you are interested in having a sexual or romantic relationship with anyone else besides your partner, that it must mean there's something wrong in your relationship. That's always this kind of embedded belief. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of therapists still have that attitude that they think, oh, Mm -hmm. something's wrong in your marriage or your relationship, and that's why you're doing this. I think we have Mm -hmm. to overcome that belief. We have to understand that no matter how perfect and wonderful your partner is, you know, who couldn't? somehow have some fun with someone else. I mean, no matter how mm-hmm. perfect and great your partner is, that, that's just a reality that we could actually have a good time with someone else. It doesn't have to mm-hmm. have any reflection on you or your relationship. Mm-hmm. And that's so a, think, a very hard belief to overcome. Right. Do you think anyone can be polyamorous or... Are there certain kinds of people that are more likely to succeed than others? I can't prove it, but I am absolutely certain 
that some people are innately monogamous, that Mm -hmm. that is their sexual orientation, that is their relationship orientation, just as much as some people are 100% gay and some people are 100% straight. Mm -hmm. If you're straight, you can't change it, you can't be gay. If you're gay, you can't be straight, you just cannot change that. Mm -hmm. There are definitely some people, I think it's a small percentage of people that are inherently, innately monogamous, and Mm -hmm. they can only pair bond with one person at a time. They may, if their spouse dies or they divorce, they certainly can pair bond with another person, but they can only really have that kind of romantic feeling for one person at a time. Mm -hmm. And when they do, they invest completely in that person. And Mm -hmm. They just really can't get interested in anyone else. They really just, that's it. And because for them, sexual and romantic exclusivity is so central to feeling safe and loved that they cannot tolerate their partner having any kind of sexual or romantic relationship with anyone else. They will never be happy with that and never be able to... Mm -hmm accept that. Again, I think it's a pretty small percentage of people, but I have definitely known any number of people who that is just their true, their truth. It's their true orientation. And they should never try to be polyamorous. (laughs) They will be miserable. And have (laughs) have you seen it work where one person feels like they really can only pair bond with another but they're able to set their partner free to be polyamorous, so we call it a polymono match. Have you seen those succeed in the long term? Well, I have definitely seen polymono relationships succeed in the long term, but I wouldn't describe it the way you just did because for the people that are in a polymono relationship that succeeds, it's usually not that that person who is being monogamous is just totally incapable of pair bonding with a second person. It's that they don't want to because they don't have the time or the energy or they just prefer to focus on other things. That's really Mm -hmm. different than someone who truly is innately monogamous because that person Mm -hmm. really cannot tolerate the partner having other sexual or romantic partners. There are plenty of people, plenty of couples where one person is behaviorally monogamous. It doesn't mean they're innately monogamous. They either just don't want to be bothered with going out and dating or they're busy doing other things that are more important to them than they only have the energy really for one sexual and romantic relationship, and that's really all they want. Mm-hmm. And what about you've you know written a book about jealousy? I'm sure you've helped a lot of people with that. So I want to go to a deeper level of that. And I know sometimes people get really deeply traumatized from jealousy and some of their core wounds um, from maybe a traumatic childhood get triggered. Um, do you see hope for people like that who maybe when they're new to poly, um, they have a lot of their deep wounds triggered and they have like a trauma response is there hope for them to get through that and get to a place where they can 
overcome that jealousy and, and be okay with it? Some people really can. It, the fact is it's just going to be harder. They're going to have a lot more work to do, and they're going to go through a longer period of pain and distress and anxiety. They're going to have a lot more fears and need a lot more reassurance than someone who has not had that experience, particularly people who have been traumatized by abandonment, particularly in childhood, abandonment by a parent, or uh, if they've gone, the parents went through a divorce and one parent kind of you know, was really not in the picture after that, or if a parent died, or if a parent did actually literally abandon them, uh, that is really tough because there is that constant fear that the person that you love the most and are so emotionally attached to and bonded with is possibly going to disappear. And mm-hmm. so it's much harder to believe that every time they go on a date or go to visit the other partner that they're going to actually come back and that they're that the relationship is not going to somehow be eroded. Oftentimes they're not so much, not as frightened uh, that the person is literally never going to come back. It's more that they just fear that when they come back, the relationship will be damaged in some way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That they're, right. it's harder they're... for them. It's harder for them to allow for that for the partner to go away and come back, go away and come back. It's it's just can be very traumatic every time for quite some time until they finally mm-hmm. start to it's if I, they finally are able to internalize that they're not leaving me and they're not even leaving the relationship temporarily. The relationship continues. The relationship continues 24/7. They just happen to be somewhere else overnight or somewhere else for a few hours or for a few days. Mm-hmm. That, that that That's a very, very hard for people that have been abandoned to establish that belief, that the relationship mm-hmm. has not been irrevocably disrupted by you going mm-hmm. over here and seeing this other person for some number of hours or a day or two. Right. Yeah, thank you. That's very helpful, I'm sure, for a lot of people because I think with enough patience and if the partner who's going to see other people can um, maybe slow things down and and go at the slowest pace um, that they're willing to go at and give the the person with uh, trauma history a chance for their nervous system to adjust, um, then Mm -hmm. I, I think it sounds like it can be really possible for them to make it work. Yes, and and an even faster cure, or I should say, a less slow <laughs> cure, is for that person who's traumatized to go out and date, because mm-hmm. if they go out and spend time with another lover and come back, and go and spend time with another lover and come back, they very very quickly will internalize the reality that that hasn't changed anything about how I feel about my partner at home. Mm-hmm. That has not disrupted the experience of intimacy that I have with my partner. It has not disrupted the bond. It's not done anything to damage the bond I feel with my partner. So they can internalize that much more quickly if they can do it themselves 
than having mm-hmm. to kind of reach over and say, okay, yeah, I can see that my partner is doing this and coming back and it's all working. That takes a lot longer. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's okay, also so the what... problem of, oh, sorry, go, go ahead. No, go ahead. Uh, even more so with people who have experienced trauma, there's often a terror of scarcity because they have usually lived their whole lives never getting enough love or attention or sense of security or reassurance or warmth or affection. So the fact that the partner is going to give even a little bit of all that stuff, all those goodies, to someone else they believe that it's very finite and that they will be starving, that they will experience terrible mm-hmm. scarcity and deprivation. So so if the partner can lavish a lot of attention on them and give them sufficient time and reassurance, that can really uh, create a much better sense of security for them so they don't feel that terrible fear of scarcity. Beautiful. Thank you. So um, just I just have time for two more questions. So briefly, one of the things we hear a lot about uh, non-monogamy is that isn't this just a guy thing for men who just have want to have a bunch of sex with lots of women and they're really just a bunch of sex addicts? Um, do women actually want this lifestyle or are they just being coerced into it? You know, what do you have to say to those criticisms? Well, if, if the the answer is very complex and very nuanced. Uh, sexism and patriarchy exist, unfortunately. I wish I could say they were had been overthrown, but they do exist. Mm-hmm. And there are certainly some men, both in monogamous and polyamorous relationships, that are very controlling and are very coercive and that do push women to go along with this idea of an open relationship against their will and when they are not really fully consenting. Uh, mm-hmm. I see this pattern particularly with women who are financially dependent on a husband because they have small children or an infant at home mm-hmm. and they have taken time away from the workforce, uh, the paid workforce, in order to raise children. Uh, mm-hmm. And so they are not in a position of equal economic power within the family, and so they feel they can't leave the marriage, so they feel forced to go along with the fact that the husband has a girlfriend. To me, that is not polyamory at all, because polyamory involves consent of all parties and Mm -hmm. people entering this of their own free will because they want it. Mm -hmm. However, there certainly are women, plenty of women, who love the freedom and independence of owning their own sexuality and not being the sexual property of one person, particularly of a man, and want to have that agency to have romantic and sexual relationships with other people. For women, it's much more often about wanting love and romance and affection as well as the sex and that they're not as motivated just by the sex they really want Mm -hmm. to have more love and affection and romance because they're usually not getting enough of that emotional intimacy 
at home. I mean, how many women have you heard complaining that they don't get enough of that emotional intimacy and attention and affection at home? Mm-hmm. So they can right. really Excellent. benefit from that. Well, I'm sure there's more you can say about that topic, but we just have a couple more minutes, so I want to ask you my last question. Um, So if somebody is thinking about opening their relationship for the first time, what would be the first steps you'd recommend? Call Sumati and make an appointment. (laughs) Get coaching. (laughs) Get coaching right away. (laughs) Uh, Actually, I really recommend that people start by just talking to your partner in the gentlest of ways about what this is all about for you, why you're attracted to this, what is your what are you hoping to get out of it? And that I think is a first step. Then doing some reading, there are lots of great books, articles, blogs, etc. out there uh, on open relationships to kind of get an idea of what might possibly work for you. And then even more importantly, Take a really good look at your relationship and see if there are any glaring problems that you need to solve first. Because mm-hmm. if your relationship is in trouble, polyamory is only going to make it worse. Mm-hmm. You just need to work on getting your relationship as healthy and strong and happy as possible before embarking on this, because this is going to create a lot of stress and conflict even in the most happy and healthy relationships so you want to be at the best possible place to do this as allies you want to be allies mm-hmm. in this not feel like you're fighting with each other over it or becoming you know antagonists beautiful well those are three great tips thank you so much and it's just been absolutely wonderful to have you on the show Kathy I feel like we could you know, I'll have you back for another whole hour. You have so much knowledge. So that's it for Thank tonight. You. But um, before, yeah, before we go, um, I want you to tell our listeners how they can reach you. If they, I think you have a pretty informative website, and um, I know you offer low cost counseling. So um, go ahead and, and take a minute to tell our listeners how they can reach you. Sure. Uh, my website is. KathyLabriola.com, and it's spelled exactly as it sounds. My phone number at my office is 510-841-5307. And my email is anarchofeminist at yahoo.com. And I will... I am happy to talk to people about what's going on with them and happy to help you if you want me to refer you to someone... Uh, or if you have want to come and see me for counseling. Uh, I have a lot of great referrals in different parts of the Bay Area and a few that are a, even outside of the Bay Area, so I always try to connect you up with someone who's in your area if you're not right here in the East Bay. Great. Okay, and that's Kathy with a K and Labriola with a B, L-A-B-R-I-O-L-A. Well, thank you, Kathy. Um, We're out of time. It was wonderful having you on the show. Thank you so much, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Sumati. Okay, good night. So next week on Leading Edge Love Radio, we'll be speaking with Kelly Bryson, who's an expert on community. He's spent a lot of time in Europe in intentional land-based communities that have a free love model, and I'm really looking forward to 
speaking to him next week at 6 p.m. Pacific time on Leading Edge Love Radio about how important it is to have community support for an alternative love style. Good night, everyone.